Galatians 2, verse 11, please. So over the past three weeks, we have spoken directly concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ, what it is, how to trust it, how to defend it. This week, we're going to consider another question. As we continue walking through the text of Galatians, you notice Galatians is very gospel heavy, and that is by design. Any uh, time you have a book that is combating an error to the gospel, you would expect it to be quite gospel heavy. The question that we answer this evening is, what does the gospel do? The gospel is simple. Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose again on the third day. The gospel is powerful. The scriptures told us, as we saw last week, that it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. And when we accept it, many things take place. There are terms upon terms dozens of terms for all that takes place at the moment of salvation, but perhaps uh, the most important of these as it relates to the reality of sin and judgment is that term known as justification. And tonight we're going to explore this concept of justification, what it is, what it means, and why it matters. But first, we need to walk through a little bit of Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. We'll exposit it together, and then we'll dig into the doctrine of justification. If you would look with me in Galatians chapter 2, we'll read verses 11 through 16. Please follow along as I read. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? We who are Jews by nature are not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Recall last time we were together in Galatians, we traced Paul through the Jerusalem Council. We, we got a history lesson about the Jerusalem Council, about what Paul did there, understanding the dynamics of how he defended the gospel by allowing the truth of the gospel to speak for itself and standing his ground whenever opposition arose. We understood in our time of application that the gospel is true whether we believe it or not. The gospel is true whether anyone likes it or not. The gospel is not at the mercy of a council. The gospel is not at the mercy of a coalition. The gospel is uh, not at the mercy of anything. The gospel is objective truth that we either align ourselves with or we simply reject. And as we compared notes with Acts chapter 15, where the account is laid out in much more detail, we found that the church at Jerusalem commissioned men to go to all of the churches in Judea. James said, send some men and go to these churches and tell them, write to them and inform them that, that this doctrine is indeed settled and 
clear up any miscommunications is really what it was intended to be as to the Gentiles to, to remind them, do not force the Gentiles as a condition of their salvation or, or uh, fellowship in the church to live as the Jews, uh, to submit themselves to circumcision and the law of Moses. And they gave them a few stipulations. We would request, he said, that they uh, don't eat animals that are strangled, don't eat the blood, don't eat things sacrificed to idols, uh, a, a few little things that they requested. But the, the idea, the foundation, was that no believer should be compelled to submit to any expectation of the law in order to be considered a true believer. In verse 11, we pick up with a separate instance on uh, one in which um, Peter visits the church at Antioch. Now, the church at Antioch had a somewhat storied history and even, we might say, a claim to fame. Antioch was in Syria. It was north of Israel, contained a very high population of both Jews and Gentiles. It was, in fact, the capital of Syria. And the church there was settled, uh, according to Acts 11.19, by Jews who had been scattered abroad in the persecution surrounding the martyrdom of Stephen. Acts 11.26 tells us that the title Christian, which literally means little Christ, was coined first at Antioch. They were called Christians first at Antioch, the scriptures tell us. And it initially was a term of mockery. It was a, a pejorative. It was a term meant to, to, to belittle these, this group of people who were so intently following this guy, Jesus. But it soon became one that the Christians themselves gladly took on. I mean, really, what better praise is there than for someone to look at you and say, you're a little Jesus. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't get much better than that, does it, as, as a follower of Christ, for, for them to call you a little Jesus. And so this was, this was a um, term that, that quickly caught on with the, with the believers, and they were more than willing to accept that term. There were other terms that they were called. They were called people of the way, and you'll find that a couple of times in the book of Acts, that they called it the way. And, of course, they were called believers, uh, and then they became known as Christians. Now, that, that term today means nothing, does it? That term today has been used so broadly that it literally means nothing. Our president calls himself a Christian, but he's not a born-again believer. The Pope calls himself a Christian, but he's not a born-again believer. He leads an entire group of people that call themselves Christians some of whom might be, many of whom are not. And so that word Christian doesn't mean anything really anymore. It doesn't mean we should yield it, but it does mean that we have to be a little more specific than, uh, than just Christian sometimes if we want people to really know what we're talking about. Verse 11 says this. We read the whole thing together says, but when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. So Peter shows up in Antioch and Paul says that the situation um, that arose caused Peter to be at fault in a particular area. That's what the word blame there means. It means to be at fault. 
And this situation, of course, Paul is giving it within the context of false gospel. So we know the situation has something to do with a gospel presentation. And in this case, Paul was forced to be seen in public opposition to the Apostle Peter in order to clarify a truth of the gospel as it was being confused by the actions of the Apostle Peter. So Paul then tells the story in verse 12. He says, For before that certain Jews came from James, he did eat with Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. So the scriptures say that prior to certain Jews, these were Jews sent from James, who was a, a leader in, in the church in Jerusalem and, and an elder and one of the ones that, that, P, that Paul stood before at the Jerusalem council. Prior to, to these Jews coming, Peter was more than happy to eat with Gentiles. Uh, there was a healthy mix of Jews and Gentiles in this church, it would seem, and they were willing, quite properly, to fellowship one with another. There was no difference between them. They fellowshiped just fine. Most likely, these Gentiles would, would be eating um, unclean foods and would not be practicing the typical Jewish dietary expectations, uh, meal expectations, meal preparatory expectations, and yet Peter was more than happy to sit with them, to dine with them, to fellowship with them. But after these Jews arrived, Paul says Peter then withdrew himself from the fellowship of the Gentiles, fearing that the Jews which were sent by James from Judea, still being men who passionately followed the law of Moses, would be angry or offended by Peter for his fellowship with these Gentiles. Now, um, as it stands, it's not necessarily, and, Peter, and Paul is not saying it's wrong that, they still, that these Jews still followed the law of Moses. It is not wrong for us if we choose to follow precepts and principles found in the Word of God, such as the law of Moses, but it's also not wrong not to. And so to withhold fellowship from a man for something that he does not have to do was the real problem here. Now, why were these men sent from James? We really don't know. Perhaps these were the men who were sent with the message to the churches concerning the law. If so, Silas would have been one of them. Perhaps it was some other message or some other errand altogether. What we do know, however, is that these men were definitely Jews and that something about their presence compelled a change in Peter. And it wasn't just Peter that was thrown into a controversy and a difficult situation here. Notice what verse 13 says. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him in so much that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. Peter's influence as a leader in the church was extensive. Here he comes to Antioch, a church that has a healthy mix of Jews and Gentiles and properly treats both alike in the Lord as he should. And everyone is seeing him dine with the Gentiles and there's no problem here and, and it perfectly conforms to the message which the gospel preaches, which is that we are all one in Christ. There are no Jews and Gentiles. There are no males or females. There are no... Um, um, old or young in Christ, we are all one. If you're a believer, you are just as much in Christ as any other believer. Peter knows that there is no spiritual difference, but when he, in fear of his own countrymen, separated from the Gentiles in order not to offend these Jews who would be offended at that separation, 
perhaps, perhaps, it was far more than just a harmless act of personal preference here. Other Jews in Antioch did the same thing. They followed Peter's lead. So much so that even Barnabas, I mean, this is the Barnabas that if we, if we follow the chronology here, likely it would have been after their first missionary journey. This is the Barnabas that went through Galatia preaching salvation by grace through faith, preaching to the Gentiles that they could be saved. And even this Barnabas was drawn away with Peter and separated himself from the Gentiles that were there. This is the power of Peter's influence. This is the power of all of our influence in many ways, is it not? When we have influence, we must always be careful about our actions because others are watching and learning and following. And notice the word that Paul uses here to describe this separation. In the English, our translators use the word dissemble, which means deceitful or hypocritical acts under false pretenses. It's a great translation, even though the word is not regularly used in our English anymore. Paul looked at their actions and he didn't call it separation. He called it deceitful hypocrisy. And the word in the Greek literally means to act deceitful or hypocritically in concert with. So to dissemble with is the first one. The second one is simply the word hypocrite. And so he says that when Peter left the fellowship with the Jews and he, or with the fellowship with the Gentiles and separated himself unto the Jews, he says, and then other Jews followed him in his hypocrisy. So much that Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. That is a strong charge, isn't it? Peter, Paul literally says Peter was being a hypocrite here. And why? Because Peter was preaching the gospel and representing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, when it came down to reflecting it in this occasion, he fell short. He fell short of reflecting what the gospel teaches, that there's no difference between me and you in Christ. That there's no difference between a Jew or a Gentile in Christ. And the Jews who still had this, this ceremonial law that they kept, that was fine unless the ceremonial law conflicted with the gospel. For the Jews, Jewish believers, to maintain devotion to the ceremonial law in areas where it contradicted the gospel of Jesus Christ was for them to claim the gospel in hypocrisy. This doesn't mean they weren't saved. It simply means they were hypocritically and improperly reflecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. This perhaps lends credence to the thought that these Jewish brethren had come from James for the purpose of telling the church that the Gentile man, like any other man, is accepted before God. Wouldn't that make it all the more hypocritical if these Jews came with this particular message that the Gentiles don't have to follow the law and yet the Jews separated themselves for fellowship? And so it's possible, it lends perhaps a little credence to that idea, that possibility, and it was a deeply hypocritical action. 
And Paul calls them out on it. Now his response upon seeing this action is swift. It's decisive. Look at verse 14. He says, When I saw that they walked not uprightly, according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, public, public rebuke here, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of the Gentiles and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? Paul stands up and reveals through sound reasoning the degree of hypocrisy which these Jews were demonstrating. And he's speaking specifically to Peter because Peter was the man who initiated this action. And obviously the others are just following Peter. So if he rebukes Peter, then the others would um, in turn accept Peter's response uh, quite likely. His reasoning is this. If they will say dogmatically that there is no difference between the Jew or the Gentile in Christ, if they will, being Jews, live as the Gentiles. Now, we don't know exactly what this means in the context. Perhaps it was that, like I said before, the food they were eating was not in line with the Mosaic Law. Maybe it was that even though they had separated themselves from these Gentile believers out of some strange loyalty to various uh, customs of their fathers, at the same time, perhaps, they were eating food that was not completely clean or that was sacrificed unto idols or, or that um, they, they hadn't gone through the ceremonial, wa- ceremonial washing of hands or whatever it might be, Paul calls them out and says there's something about how you are acting and living here today that shows that you are not fully following the law of God. And yet for all of that, you are separating from them, you are compelling these Gentiles, you are making them feel guilty about not following that same law themselves. And since they know this, they live this way, the question becomes, why would you separate from Gentiles for not living as the Jews? Why would you do anything that would even implicitly put pressure on these Gentiles to change the way that they live? And in the context, of course, of things which are pure, not sinful, in order to have fellowship with you in Christ. And as Paul continues, perhaps he says somewhat tongue-in-cheek, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, in verse 15, Paul concedes that they are Jews by nature and contrasts this with the Gentiles being sinners. Now, of course, that was a, a title that was regular. It would not have been uncommon for the Jews to look at anyone that was not Jewish and call them a sinner. It was not inherently intended to judge their moral state as much as it was to simply show, the, well, it shows their superiority complex, right? That we're right with God and, and anyone else in the world is sinners. It's kind of like those people that believe anyone outside of their church is a sinner, right? Just because they're not in this church. That, 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 that's sort of an idea that the Jews would carry into their understanding. And so it was a, a phrase that had been used and had been used for, for a, a long time to um, express the difference between the Jews and the Gentiles. But he could have again said, for we who are Jews by nature and not Gentiles, but he didn't say that, did he? He said, and not sinners. Not sinners of the Gentiles. So it's quite clear here that he's trying to emphasize this false self-righteousness that the Jews have always used in reference to the Gentile world. And he says, um, uh, you know, Peter, and, uh, before we get on to verse 16, Peter and Barnabas, they knew this. No doubt they regularly preached all of these truths. But here, they, they fell short of 
their actions reflecting the gospel. And that's really what, what Paul is, is showing here. And, and he says this in verse 16 as he completes his message. He says, you who are Jews by nature, he says we, because he is one as well, we who are Jews by nature, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Christ, even we have believed in Christ. So he says, yes, we are Jews by nature, but even we know that we have to believe in Christ to be saved. Even we know that the law is not, has no power to get us any closer to God. Even we know this who are Jews. And even we who are Jews recognize that we need this just as much as anyone else does. That we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, he says, shall no flesh be justified. The most potent gospel truth that a man is justified by faith without the works of the law is likewise the very basis by which Paul declares Peter's actions and those who followed Peter deeply hypocritical. Peter's Jewish roots in no way contributed to his standing before God. Paul's Jewish roots in no way contributed to his standing before God unto justification, in no way informed his standing with God unto sanctification, and likewise should in no way inform his treatment of Gentile believers. And in this verse, we see a particular word come up three times. The word that we are going to focus on for the rest of our time this evening, the word justified. Each deeply emphasizing the fact that justification is found by the faith of Christ, not by the works of the law. And that will be what we focus on for the rest of our time together. We're going to seek to understand the doctrine of justification and how it applies to our lives today. The theological term justification literally means to declare righteous or to be declared righteous. As it relates to salvation, we define at Legacy Baptist Church justification this way. The divine act of free grace by which God pardons the sinner and accepts him as righteous on account of the atonement of Christ. The divine act of free grace by which God pardons the sinner and accepts him as righteous on account of the atonement of Christ. When we consider the doctrine of salvation, uh, really the, the salvation itself works in three distinct but interrelated directions. Salvation involves redemption toward sin, that in Christ the ransom is made to pay man's debt toward sin. It also works in reconciliation toward man, that God acknowledges his son as the one who paid this debt, thus reconciling man to himself. And it works in propitiation toward God. That word propitiation literally meaning a covering or an atonement, that this payment satisfies God's wrath towards sin, which has now been atoned. So as we think about this, let me say it again. Redemption towards sin that Christ's ransom paid the price. Reconciliation toward man, that as God sees the ransom being paid, man now has the possibility of being reconciled back to God. And then propitiation toward God, that, that that debt payment and the reconciliation of man satisfies God and His wrath toward sin. As we consider justification, 
it relates directly to that second point, the divine reconciliation of man to God. Now, biblically, we see a beautiful picture of justification from Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is the prophecy of God's suffering servant, Messiah, and the nature of his suffering for the sins of others. And we read this in Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here we see the prophecy of God's servant Messiah who bears the sorrow and griefs of mankind being punished for his iniquities. In the whole of Scripture, even as you go to the gospel presentations of the crucifixion itself, there is no more vibrant or clear illustration of what happened to Jesus on that day than Isaiah 53. That He bore our sins. That He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. That the chastisement of our peace was upon Him. That with His stripes we are healed. This this is an incredible, beautiful, though tragic in many ways, description of all that Christ went through to heal us. God literally laid upon Messiah the iniquities of us all. But there's more. We continue in the context. I jump to verse 10, which says this, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Let's just stop on that phrase for a moment and think about that. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. What a thought. That as the Lord watched Jesus be bruised for our iniquities, God was pleased. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Messiah's suffering was voluntary. It was indeed a sacrifice given to God. And so though it, there's no way that God possibly could have been happy to see his son slain, God was pleased. Because as his son, his servant, went to the cross and suffered and was bruised and was scorned and was beaten and was whipped, God knew that his will was being done. That the outworking of this suffering was a spiritual heritage and the power of an endless life. And to that extent, God was pleased. But the story isn't really complete until we read the next verse. Verse 11. He shall see the travail, God shall see the travail of the servant's soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall, many, shall my righteous servant justify many. 
for he shall bear their iniquities. The righteous servant of God will bear the iniquities of many, and as God sees the travail of his servant's soul, as he bears the wrath of of sin, as he bears the pain of sin, as he stands in the gap before man and eternal judgment, God's wrath will be satisfied, and thus all who believe will be accepted as righteous. And that is justification. But how does justification work, we ask? Well, for that, we go to the book of Romans. We're going to be spending a little bit of time in the book of Romans, so if you would like to turn there, you may. We're going to be flipping through several verses in Romans 2, 3, 4. And so uh, you can follow along on the screen or you can follow along in your Bibles. I do, of course, encourage you to bring your Bibles, underline, uh, it's that intimate source for you and your personal study, and I would always encourage you um, to be active in having a, a good record of what you learn in your Bible itself. But in these chapters, Romans 2 through 6, the reader is treated to really a five chapter discussion of the reality of justification by grace through faith. And our journey begins in Romans 2, where we witness the theological and practical failures of self-righteousness. Look with me at verses 1 through 11 of Romans 2. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of, right, of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, for there is no respect of persons with God. Here, there is laid out a divine, immutable, that word literally meaning unchanging, divine, immutable principle laid out here that God renders to every man according to his deeds. To the obedient, God renders honor. To the disobedient, God renders tribulation and judgment. And that whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, there is no respect of persons with God. This is the divine decree. Paul goes on in this passage to highlight the very same point that Paul makes in Galatians 2, that under the law, a man is fully responsible for his own sin. He has just been given insight into what that sin is and how impossible it is for any man to keep that standard. Paul here also rebukes the Jew, highlighting the hypocrisy of holding to the world to an impossible standard of righteousness that even they cannot hold themselves to. And so what Romans chapter 2 is intended to do is reflect to us the 
failure of self-righteousness. That it doesn't matter how moral you think you are, if you are trusting in some form of self-righteousness, you have already fallen short because God has this divine decree in place that says, I will judge every man according to his works and there is no respective person with God. Now, at the end of Romans chapter 2, the people reading it ought to feel somewhat if, if uh, exposed. Because they're supposed to be realizing, as Paul highlights this doctrine, that even if you're a moral man and you're judging others based upon some moral code, Paul just taught us, he just revealed to us that everyone stands guilty in Christ. As Paul transitions to chapter 3, he appeals to the Psalms to make his point. Quoting in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, Psalm 14, 1 through 3. And if you have your Bibles open to Romans, you can look in Romans 3, verses 10 and 11 as I read Romans 4, uh, excuse me, Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. The psalmist says, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looketh down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. A universal declaration of sin. A universal condemnation under sin. That there is none that can keep the law. That God has a standard. And it is that by your works you will be justified. By your works you will be condemned. That the man that does good will receive honor. That the man that, that does evil will receive tribulation and judgment. And the problem is there is none good. No, not one. And this leads us to an inevitable conclusion, and it's the same conclusion, conclusion uh, of which Paul reminded Peter in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. And we read this conclusion, as we're in Romans, in Romans 3, verses 20 to 26. Paul says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin, but now the righteousness of God without the law, outside of the law, is made manifested, excuse me, is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. No flesh is able to work his way into justification with God for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what the Bible tells us. That's what Paul, that's where Paul was leading his argument all the way really from Romans chapter 1 to this reality that whether you have completely rejected God and of course in Romans chapter 1 we see that, that highlighting of, of the man who's rejected God and who has been given over to his own lusts and, 
and he talks about the sodomite and he talks about those who have denied and worshiped the creature rather than the creator and talked about those who not only do such things but take pleasure in those that do them and all of this pointing to the reality that there is a group that has rejected God and then he turns the tables in Romans chapter 2 and he says but it's not just those that have completely rejected God it's those who in self-righteousness are moralizing God and they are thinking that because they can keep some sort of moral foundation this is legalism because they think that they can keep some sort of moral foundation, that they are just before God, but in all that they say that they need to do, they actually don't do it, that in their hearts they are still just as rotten and just as wicked. And so by, and, and, and as he brings it all together in Romans chapter 3, he says, so the conclusion is that there's none good, no, not one, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And why? Well, he says it right here at the end of Romans 3. Because in doing so, God has allowed His Son to be the propitiation and to the end that as God sees the atonement of the blood of Jesus Christ, that which we memorialize through the Lord's table this evening, that by the grace of God, all who believe are found righteous in Christ. See, so that when we stand before God, we will be judged by our work standard as it were. But when God looks on it, He will see Christ. He will see Christ. Because Christ has been the propitiation, the covering, the atonement, the satisfaction for our sins. To the end that not only would God's justice be fulfilled, that God would be just, but also that He would be the justifier, the one who declares righteous him which believes in Jesus. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? That because of the universal declaration of us all being under sin, because there's no man that can get to God on his own, every man now has the universal opportunity through Christ to believe on His name and be saved. And so that when any man stands before God, it will not be on the merit of what he's done or not done. It will be on the merit of what Christ has done and whether or not he has accepted it. That's justification. Being declared righteous based upon the atoning work of Christ. Now in chapter 4 of Romans, we learn that the Scriptures teach quite plainly of justification all the way back to Abraham that Abraham's justification was not through the law because there wasn't a law yet, was not through circumcision because there wasn't circumcision yet. He was declared righteous prior to his circumcision. He was declared righteous, of course, well prior to the law. But quoting Genesis 5.16, Paul says this in Romans chapter 4, verse 3. For what saith the Scriptures? Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. That Abraham believed God, God accepted Abraham's faith in the revealed word of God, which would inevitably manifest itself in the finished work of Christ, right? Who is Christ? He is the word of God incarnate, is he not? Jesus Christ is the word of God. So if Abraham heard the word of God, and every element of the Word of God that he heard, he put his faith in. Who's, who's he putting his faith in? Jesus Christ. 
the Word of God in the Old Testament is just as much Jesus because the Bible says in John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And in John 1.14, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So when we believe the Word of God, whether spoken by Jesus or whether spoken by a prophet or whether spoken by the God of the Old Testament, the Word of God is still synonymous with Christ. And so when Abraham believed God, he was as much putting his faith in Christ as we. And so he put his... Not, not as much had been revealed about Christ and about the Word and about redemption, but it was still the Word of God. God imputed righteousness upon Abraham on that day, not through the law, not through circumcision, but through the faith and the revealed Word of God. And so Romans chapter 4, verses 20 to 22 tell us this, that he, that's Paul, I mean Paul, not Paul, Abraham, staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, what God had promised, God was able also to perform. And therefore, it was imputed. This faith was imputed, was reckoned, was placed on him as righteousness. Righteousness was imputed to him. And where God justifies where God's declarations of righteousness are made, He guards them with all fervor and determination. And this leads us to chapter 5 as we continue our journey through Romans, learning about justification. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You can start at the beginning of your Bible. You can go all the way to the end of your Bible. You can open it anywhere in between. You can look at Adam and Eve. You can look at Abraham. You can look at David. You can look at Solomon. You can look at, at Daniel. You can look to the cross. You can look to the church. It doesn't matter where you look in the Bible or where you look in history. We find that there is no capacity for a man to be declared righteous through himself. That God is the justifier. He is the one who, as an act of free grace, pardons the sinner and accepts him as righteous on the basis of the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And from this, we learn the irrefutable fact that way back in Romans 2, where Paul rebuked the self-justifying man, he was not judging that man, but rather emphasizing to that man the same thing that we all must understand about the doctrine of justification. That justification is completely linked to condemnation. That the very fact of our condemnation under the law, the very reality of our incapacity to measure up to God's standard, is the standing that qualifies us to be justified by Christ. And boy, what a blessing it is that we don't have to be in our own hands for our eternal salvation. We're in the hands of God Himself. And so it is that the deepest blight of the human condition, that is the blight of sin, forms the very foundation of the greatest joy, the greatest peace found through 
justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that echoes the words that Paul reminded Peter in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. As Paul told Peter, knowing this, Peter, that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Christ. Even we have believed in Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now the natural application to everything that Paul teaches about justification is ironically, not ironically, is found in Romans 6. Can you believe it? And we're not actually going to go there this evening except to quote the verse that I quote quite often as Paul quotes in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, he says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Because God is the justifier of the ungodly, because God has redeemed us being sinful men, because we are all condemned under our sin and that it is not, the condom, it is not our own works, but it is Christ's works that get us to heaven so that when we stand before God one day and God looks at us, He will not see us and our works he will see Christ and His works and we will thus be declared righteous not because we have earned righteousness, not because we deserve righteousness, but because Jesus Christ paid for our righteousness with His own blood on the cross. And does that mean, okay, I guess that means a get-out-of-life-free card, right? Because Jesus Christ has been the one that has done it all for me and my sin does not factor one way or the other, that means I can just continue in sin and allow the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to abound to my behalf. And Paul says in Romans 6.1, as he has just spent literally five chapters of doctrine teaching on justification, God forbid. How should we that are dead to sin live any longer there? And, and then he goes on to teach about what it means to live alive under Christ and dead to sin, and that's Romans 6 through 8. I highly recommend it. We're not going to go there tonight, though. But that should be the desire of our hearts as we understand justification. That with all gravity, we would be impressed upon our hearts the price that was paid for our justification that the body of Jesus was broken, that the blood of Jesus was spilt, that Isaiah 53, as it speaks about the, the justification of all those, started with He was bruised, He was condemned, He was slain, He was beaten, and with His stripes we are healed. And so I offer you no particular application this evening other than simply this. That justification is the free act of God by grace whereby He pardons the sinner and accepts him as righteous on account of the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. And while the grace of God for us is a free gift, we know it came at a great cost. And lest we take that cost in vain. As we considered the Lord's table this evening, we warned against the danger of partaking unworthily and not regarding the body and the blood of Christ. 
And that is just as much as what is at stake if we seek to take advantage of grace as if we seek to disregard the Lord's table. It is a complete disregard for the purchase of Jesus Christ for our sin. And it's a disregard of the body and the blood of Christ. So may we as God's people not be found there this evening. May we not be found in any capacity disregarding Christ and His sacrifice. Disregarding the justification that we have found by grace through faith. Let's pray.